As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 132, Iconic Nefertiti. Today, we focus on the most famous work of Egyptian sculpture, the bust of Nefertiti discovered at Amarna. We explore how the head was made, how it was discovered, and how it wound up in a museum far, far from its home. It is a story of top quality craftsmanship, fascinating discovery, and some rather dishonest practices. From the heights of artistic achievement, we also face some of the dark realities in Egyptological history. This podcast was sponsored by Aline, Martin, and Deborah, who joined the podcast on Patreon.com. Folks, you are too kind. Thank you for your support, and may the Arten bring blessings to your house. To everyone listening, thank you for stopping by. On with the show. The year was approximately 1347 BCE, regnal year 16 under the majesty of Akhenaten, king of Egypt, son of Ra, etc, etc. This story has very little to do with the pharaoh of Egypt, except in the sense that the Nefertiti bust was commissioned and manufactured sometime in the king's reign. It was made at his new city, Akhet Aten, and it depicted his wife, the queen of Egypt, Nefertiti. But this story is not really about Akhenaten or Nefertiti. Instead, it is about a group of artists. In the later years of Akhenaten's reign, artisans working in the royal city created some of their most beautiful images. The king had always taken a special interest in art, in public imagery that conveyed ideas. From the very start of his reign, Akhenaten had used statues, wall carvings, and paintings to communicate his ideas about the world and his place within it. At first, Egypt's artists had difficulty adjusting to Akhenaten's new designs. Images made in the earliest years of his reign tend to be quite extreme, misshapen, almost ugly. Whether that was intentional or a side effect of the sudden shift in designs is unclear. What we do know is that by the second half of the king's reign, royal sculptors had begun to master the new style of imagery. This is the context in which the Nefertiti bust came about. Among the many artists who served the government, one of the most prominent was a man named Jehuti Mess. He is more commonly known as Tutmos, aka Born of Thoth, but I'm going to call him Jehuti Mess. Jehuti Mess lived at the royal city, Arket Aten. He dwelled in a large house surrounded by a wall. This compound or estate was typical for the time, 
It had a large courtyard, a columned hall for daily business and work, and various storerooms. There was a stable for horses, and even a large well dug into the earth with a staircase running down. Jehuti Massa's house was two stories tall, with a staircase leading up to the second level. And because Jehuti Mess was a prominent, wealthy individual, his house also featured large granaries, silos that would store huge quantities of wheat and barley. These grains were an asset. When finely ground and baked into bread, they could serve as payment for servants, family members, and the other sculptors whom Jehuti Mess employed. Jehuti Mess seems to have been a sort of master craftsman. He did not work alone. Instead, he ran a sculptor's workshop, employing several artisans at once. These people, who may have included family members and distant relations, worked at Jehuti Mess's house, and his estate served as a factory for magnificent sculpture. The workshop that Jehuti Mess operated worked primarily on royal pieces, statues of Akhenaten and his family. At least, that is the image we get from the artifacts, the items left behind in this house when Jehuti Mess and his family vacated. It is possible that other works for non-royal people went with the family or the customer when they left. But for now, it seems that this workshop focused on royal business. The workshop of Jehuti Mess is the factory responsible for the Nefertiti bust. We do not know exactly who carved it and decorated it, but the high quality of the piece suggests that the artist was high-ranking and highly skilled. At the very least, Jehuti Mess himself is a good bet. I'm going to tell this story as if Jehuti Mess was responsible for the work. Obviously we can't be sure, but we need to focus on someone, and Jehuti Mess is our best candidate. So with that in mind, let us explore the story of how an ancient Egyptian sculptor carved the most famous image from the kingdom. One day, the sculptor Jehuti Mess started work on a new statue. This would be a portrait of the queen, carved from a block of limestone. It would show Nefertiti in her special crown, the tall blue cap with a flat top. Nefertiti appeared with this crown in many artistic pieces, including several that Jehuti Mess and his sculptors had created. So the queen was a familiar subject, the artist was experienced with the shape. Working slowly, the sculptor chiseled away sections of the limestone block. First, he worked the stone into a rough approximation of the head and crown. It was lumpy and misshapen, but it gave the outline from which finer details could be worked. Carving slowly, layer by layer, the artist whittled the limestone down, inching closer to the desired form. Gradually, the queen's face took shape. Under the artist's chisels, Nefertiti would have a narrow face with prominent cheekbones and eyebrow ridges. Her nose would be long and symmetrical, her lips full and sharply defined. Her eyes would be delicately modelled in an almost almond-shaped fashion. For the eyes themselves, the artist would shape the socket and then carve the stone out of the eye, making a hollow space in the orb. Later, he would fill the eye sockets with glass or stone to simulate the eyes, but at first, the queen's sockets were empty. 
Working downward from the face, the sculptor gave Nefertiti a well-defined chin and jaw. The queen would have a squared face, and her cheeks would sink inward slightly, helping to define the lines. For the neck, the artist fashioned a long stretch of skin that leaned forward slightly to support the weight of the head and crown. With this, Nefertiti's sculptor created an image of elongated but carefully defined lines. Everything was symmetrical, or close enough, and the features were carved to a precise degree. So as he gradually formed the crown, the face, the neck, and the shoulders, the artist gradually refined the details. Little by little, the sculptor carved chips of limestone away, smoothing them with rough stones and sand, working out the impurities. It was laborious and time-consuming, but that was part of the job. Little by little, the sculptor refined the head. After many days of work, the rough sculpting was done, and the head of Nefertiti stood ready for decoration. It was still not perfect yet, there were impurities in the shape, and those would need to be fixed. The eyes were still hollow, but that was intentional. And the basic details, like the queen's necklace and decoration, would be painted on later, rather than carved. But in its rough form, the head was ready. In the raw state, Nefertiti's face was still a beautiful piece, a high point of the sculptor's craft. The crown, in particular, was excellently balanced, angled just right so that the long neck could support the weight and keep the image upright. The face was expertly carved, presenting a refined, and probably idealised, image of the queen. So the sculptor took his block of limestone and slowly whittled it down until he had the shape of the head. Now it was ready for paint, but before he could decorate the limestone head, the sculptor needed a layer of plaster. The Nefertiti bust is not simply limestone with paint on top. Instead, the head bears a thin layer of plaster applied all over the surface. The plaster is made of gypsum, commonly known as plaster of Paris. Gypsum plaster is useful because it dissolves in water, making it easy to work, and when it dries, it does not crack or flake. So the material is versatile and workable, perfect for applying to a statue. So, once the limestone was carved, the artist mixed up a batch of gypsum plaster and began to apply it to the head of the queen. He layered the plaster carefully all over the stone, and as he worked, he used the plaster to enhance the quality of the overall piece. If there were gaps or impurities in the limestone, the plaster would fill them in, helping to smooth the overall surface. If any parts were uneven, or needed a bit more oomph, the sculptor could layer plaster over that to refine the features. This is probably why the Nefertiti bust, in particular, looks so perfect compared to other sculptures of the time. Other heads from the city of Akhet Aten are equally beautiful, but they don't have the plaster or the paint, so they don't appear as lovely as Nefertiti. The queen is not just exquisitely carved, she is also beautifully decorated and preserved, so this gives her a special status among artistic objects. But we should recognise that this was just one high-quality piece 
in an extremely accomplished workshop. It's possible that there were many other items of equal beauty that are now lost. I'm not trying to take away from the excellent work that the sculptor did, of course. I'm just pointing out that the plaster and paint add a special layer of beauty to this statue, one that many others would have had originally. So, the sculptor finished the head in limestone, carving it as close to perfect as he could get. Then, an artist applied gypsum plaster, or plaster of Paris, to refine the image, clear away imperfections, and mould some of the queen's features. When all of this work was done, and the plasterer sat back to wipe the gunk from his hands, he had a beautifully modelled, high-quality image. A perfect picture of Egypt's ruling queen. Now, it was time for the paint. For Nefertiti's face and neck, the artist chose a pale tan, a kind of yellowy-orange. This light complexion might reflect the queen's actual appearance, but it could also be symbolic. The artist may have chose this light pale colour to reflect Nefertiti's position. The queen was a wealthy, privileged individual, and as such, she could avoid spending long days labouring in the sun. With that in mind, we should not assume that the statue's light, yellowy skin is accurate to Nefertiti's appearance. She could easily have been much darker in real life. Also, depending on the photo you see, the lighting can make Nefertiti appear lighter or darker in contexts. In some photos, she is a pale tan, others quite orange. The bust is hard to capture precisely, and this is an issue, because it affects how we receive the Queen. I have never visited Berlin, unfortunately, so I have not seen the statue in person, yet. This makes me hesitant to comment too closely on the paint that was used, because depending on the photo I see, the colours can vary quite widely. So for now, I'm going to keep my comments basic, and come back to them another time. Above the queen's face, her crown is a deep blue, with bands of gold running around the edges. At the front, a thick ribbon of gold covers most of her forehead, almost like a skullcap beneath the crown itself. On the surface of the crown, a ribbon of gold runs around the outside. The ribbon features small blocks of colour, red, green and blue, divided by lines of yellow. This band seems to be a specific feature of Nefertiti's crown. It appears in other images of the queen, and it sometimes has serpents, uraei, hanging off the ribbon, providing ornament for the headgear. These extra serpents don't appear on the bust, but the coloured band does. At the front of the crown, a long, thin line of stone winds its way from the peak down to the forehead. This line, broken in antiquity, used to depict a snake that would sit above the queen's brow. The snake was carved from limestone while the sculptor was shaping the crown, so it is not separate, it is part of the original design. The artist had to work around the snake when making the image out of stone. He did a magnificent job. The line of the snake is gorgeous. The body lies flat against the surface, but it tapers towards the top, forming a ridge along the spine. It is so precise, you want to reach out and run your finger along it, just to feel the edge. Although the serpent's body is damaged a bit, that line is still pristine, 
a clearly defined centre for the crown's frontal face. The snake's body travels down towards the forehead, and when it reaches that point, the artist gave the snake a fantastic pose. Just at the point where the golden, multicoloured ribbon crosses the crown, the snake's body coils left and then right. It forms a pair of loops on either side of the central line. I particularly love this feature. It gives the serpent a distinctive but visually pleasing image. When the body loops left then right, the shapes it makes are rough, asymmetrical. They are offset, one higher than the other, and they give the body a bit of flair, enhancing the front of the crown. This feature may seem simple, but it adds life and detail to the ornamentation. Personally, I love it. After its little loop-the-loop, -loop, the snake's body returns to the centre. Then, it reaches the point where, originally, the serpent would rear up away from the surface to sit on the queen's forehead. This image is the uraeus, the mark of royalty in ancient Egyptian art. The uraeus, a goddess named Wadjet, was traditionally a symbol of kings rather than queens. But during the 18th dynasty, that convention changed, and great kings' wives started to wear the uraeus as well. It seems to have been part of a general trend where the queens held greater public status and were more central to royal imagery. So, for Nefertiti, wearing the uraeus is totally normal, acceptable for the time. One last feature of the bust deserves our attention. At the bottom of the sculpture, the queen wears a wide necklace. It appears in four rows or bands, with different motifs in each. From top to bottom, we see a band of chevrons pointing right to left, a band of papyrus plants bundled together, a band of lotus flowers, and finally, another band of papyrus. These decorations appear in gold, blue, green, and red, and they have an interesting feature that you only notice on some photographs. Every part of the necklace that is gold, green, or red is flat, painted onto the surface with no embellishment. But the blue parts on each row are raised, embossed. This is a curious feature, for which I do not have an explanation. Perhaps the artist was working in phases, doing each colour in flat surface first, then adding the raised portions with plaster later. Or perhaps he wanted to emphasise the blue parts specifically. In antiquity, blue was a rare and expensive colour to produce. So perhaps the artist embossed this colour specifically to make it stand out. If so, it worked. Finally, the main work was done. The sculptor finished the basic colours of the skin, crown and necklace. He added red to the queen's lips, and black to her eyebrows and eyeliner. Then he put down his brush to begin work on the next phase, the eyes. Nefertiti's eyes, or eye, she only has one, are made in two parts. First, the sculptor applied a black ball of wax, which he attached to the background of the socket. This would be the pupil. Then, on top of the wax, the artist applied a thin lens made of rock crystal. This was translucent but reflective, and it would give the queen's eye their shimmering, lifelike quality. This rock crystal is clearly beautifully carved and polished, an excellent piece of work 
that you might not notice unless you are looking closely. So the eyes were an excellent achievement in and of themselves. But obviously, there is something wrong with Nefertiti's eyes. For some reason, the sculptor only completed one of them, and he never attached the second. So the Nefertiti bust, as beautiful as it is, is really one-eyed. This surprises many people when they see the queen in person for the first time. You see, photos and replicas of the statue will often hide or fix the second eye, to make the statue more conventionally attractive to modern tastes. But officially, the Nefertiti bust has just one eye, and one empty socket. Why? It is unclear whether the statue originally had both eyes or just one. Close examinations of the empty socket suggest that it was always empty, but this is inconclusive. Scratch marks in the lower eyelid could be the result of someone inserting or removing the second eye, so we cannot be sure if Nefertiti always had one eye or originally had both. Understandably, the missing eye has caused some people to wonder if the piece is unfinished. Perhaps the sculptor completed most of the statue, but stopped just before the end, for whatever reason. Or perhaps the bust was a trial piece, a model that other artists could use as a guide when making royal sculpture. It may seem hard to imagine that such a beautiful piece could be just a model, but it is possible. So the Nefertiti bust is the product of highly skilled artists working in the city of Arket Artin. They worked in the house of Jehuti Mes, royal sculptor and wealthy servant of the king. There is a reasonably good chance that Jehuti Mes himself carved the Nefertiti bust. At the very least, it was his workshop operating in his townhouse that produced this magnificent piece of art. Of course, the Nefertiti bust is a masterpiece of ancient Egyptian sculpture. The queen appears in stunning detail, with an appropriate air of majesty conveying her power. At least, this is how modern audiences receive it. The queen is an accessible image, one that does not require much imagination to connect with a real person. So, when we assess the statue and talk about its beauty, we must remember that we are thinking with a modern sensibility, one that we have learned from our own cultural backgrounds. Nevertheless, we can praise the sculptor, Jehuti Mess or someone else, for their careful, precise work. The lines of the bust are clean, the proportions excellently modelled, and the facial features are moulded, shaped, and painted in a gorgeous fashion. Clearly, whoever made this piece was working at the height of their game. Of course, the beauty of the Nefertiti bust is only half of the story. Today, you can see the Queen in pictures online, or in a museum in Berlin. But when you visit Nefertiti, there is always a question hanging over the statue. How did an object of such obvious artistic merit wind up so far from Egypt? How was the bust of Nefertiti discovered, and how did it travel out of Egypt all the way to Germany? That is a complex story which we will cover in the next chapter. For now, it's time for a quick break. See you in a moment!
The Nefertiti bust is one of the most famous artifacts from Egypt, and one of the most recognisable images of the entire ancient world. The statue has inspired artists working in all media, and the queen's head is a national icon of the Egyptian people. But Nefertiti's bust is not in Egypt. It is housed in a museum gallery in Berlin, Germany. It has been there since 1913. How did the Queen travel so far from her home, and what were the circumstances of her discovery? These questions are the story for this chapter. The Nefertiti bust was discovered on December 6th, 1912. It was excavated by an Egyptian man, Muhammad Ahmed S. Senussi, who was working as a digger in the city of El Amana, ancient Arket Atin. S. Senussi excavated the bust under the employment of Ludwig Borschat, German scholar and head of the excavation project. As a result, you will often read that Borschat discovered the bust. And this is true in the basic sense that he ran the project. But, as always, there is a deeper layer to the story. Although Borschat was in charge, it was Muhammad Ahmed S. Senussi who excavated the Queen's head. When the bust was discovered, it was lying in the courtyard of an ancient sculptor's estate. The old house belonged to the royal artisan Jehuti Mess, whom we met in chapter 1. Jehuti Mess's house-slash-workshop was responsible for this portrait. But apparently, when Jehuti Mess and his family left Arket Aten, they abandoned the statue. In fact, the Nefertiti bust was buried upside down in the soil that covered this estate. So whoever dumped it here apparently did not care that much. Which is surprising, considering how famous the statue has become. On the day of the discovery, Muhammad Ahmed Esenusi and other Egyptian diggers were clearing this ancient house. They found many pieces of art during their excavations. Old statues, bits of stone and plaster, and traces of the ancient workshop littered the archaeological site. As you can imagine, removing all of this material was an immense task, and when the Nefertiti bust first came to light, it took a while to realise the significance. Muhammad Es-Sanusi worked carefully as he removed the head from the soil. He dug with his bare hands to avoid accidentally damaging the queen. As he worked, Es-Sanusi had to clear other bits of statue from the area. Slowly, working around those, he gradually extricated the queen from the soil. Old portraits of Akhenaten and the royal daughters were buried throughout the courtyard, and Nefertiti was mixed in among those. Slowly, working around the other pieces, Muhammad Es-Sanusi gradually extricated the queen from the soil. After hours of work, Nefertiti emerged from the dark and returned to the world of the living. There is a photograph of the Nefertiti bust on the day of its discovery. It shows the statue in the hands of an Egyptian, possibly as Senussi who excavated it. To the left, two Europeans, Ludwig Borchardt and his assistant, Hermann Ranke, examine the bust. The queen herself is dirty, but recognisable. Her left eye, the empty one, stares blankly towards the sky. The shadows play across her neck and face, and the broken uraeus is noticeable on the forehead. 
It is a powerful image, a rare moment of history captured on film. As always, you can see this image on the website, link in the episode description. Like a good scholar, Borchardt, the head of the excavation, wrote a description of the Nefertiti head on the day it came to light. His description is brief, but concise, and it says, quote, Life-size painted bust of the queen, 47 centimetres high, with the blue wig cut straight on top and garlanded by a ribbon halfway up. Colours look freshly painted. Really wonderful work, no use describing it. You have to see it. End quote. This description may sound short, considering how famous the Nefertiti bust has become. Surely, Borchardt would have seen its value immediately and made special notes about it. Well, yes and no. Clearly, Borchardt was impressed, saying, No use describing, you have to see it. But, you know, in German. And he got the basic details right, even if he called her crown a wig. But still, surely he would have said more? Well, apparently, Borchardt was somewhat overwhelmed by the discoveries taking place around this time. Years later, he reflected on the excavation, and when he looked back on the discovery of Nefertiti, he said, quote, Were I to describe this discovery as it really took place, with its confusion, its surprises, its hopes, and also its minor disappointments, the reader would certainly be as confused as we were at the time. We had hardly got the particulars of one find down on paper before two further objects were uncovered. End quote. So Borchardt's excavation at Amana was intense. A flurry of new finds emerged one after the other, and when it came to recording the artistic pieces, the sheer volume and quality of the discoveries rapidly overwhelmed the scholars. Perhaps Borchardt's brief notes are simply the notes of a man pulled in several directions at once. Soon after Muhammad Ahmed Essanusi carefully retrieved the Nefertiti bust, the European bosses, Borchardt and Ranke, realised that this was a valuable discovery. The Queen's head was brightly painted, exquisitely carved, and preserved in remarkably good condition. On that basis alone, it was one of the more valuable quote-unquote finds of the season. Although the bust is anonymous, it does not bear any inscriptions that identify the person, it has always been 99% likely that it shows Nefertiti. The main criterion is the crown. Nefertiti's tall, flat-topped crown is unique to her. No other woman wears it as far as we can tell. So, even if the bust does not have any texts, it was always, most likely, an image of the queen. Borchardt knew this when he first studied the object. Going back to his description, he calls it a, quote, painted bust of the queen, end quote. The fact he says the queen, not a queen, shows that he recognised the basic detail. The painted bust probably showed Nefertiti. I say this to make a basic point. When the statue came to light, Borchardt knew whom it depicted. He certainly recognised the beauty of the statue and the wonderful state of its preservation. On this basis, he clearly knew that it was valuable, an item of great artistic and even commercial value. This is important because it plays a big factor in the next phase of events. 
When Borchardt received the bust from its excavator, Mohammed S. Sanusi, the German scholar immediately sent a report to Berlin. He notified his patrons at the German Oriental Society about the discoveries he was making at Amana. As you can imagine, the bosses were excited by the news. And soon, Borchardt was working to acquire the Nefertiti bust for his patrons and take it back to Germany. The way Borchardt obtained the bust is interesting, because it was technically legal according to the laws of 1912. But the way he did it, and the morality of his methods, leave something to be desired. As we round out this episode, let's examine the question of how Nefertiti came to Berlin. First up, we should consider the legal context. In 1912, foreign excavations in Egypt could keep a share of their discoveries. The system was called partage, and under its terms, the antiquity service would permit the excavators to keep a portion of their finds. The basic idea was that wealthy foreigners, museums or business people, were more likely to pay for excavations if they were getting something in return. Partage was the way to encourage investment, get teams digging on the back of foreign money, and let them keep some items as a reward. Partage was not great for archaeology. The lure of valuable finds encouraged treasure hunting, and it meant that excavators wanted to explore some areas more than others. It also caused issues for science. If a team got to take objects back to their own country, then the find was dispersed, and valuable context or connections might be lost. To this day, art historians and Egyptologists frequently find connections between objects housed in different museums. Pieces may travel all around the world and lose much of their original context until some sharp-eyed observer notices a comparison with something they've seen before. So, Partage tends to disperse finds, and to this day, Egyptologists are still finding gaps where that happened. Anyway, in 1912, partage was still a system. It would end a few years later, but when Nefertiti was discovered, it was part of the law. Under the rules of partage, the antiquity service could claim any object that it deemed valuable or significant. The excavators were obliged to report their discoveries openly and honestly, and the antiquities inspectors had the power to choose any objects to keep in Egypt. So, the legal context was that Borchardt's excavation could keep some of the objects they found and take them back to Germany. But first, they had to report every discovery to the antiquities service and allow them to review the finds. This is where the story gets murky. On January 20th, 1913, the government antiquities inspector arrived at Amana. His name was Gustave Lefebvre. He was a specialist in ancient literature more than art. Lefebvre had a big job inspecting sites throughout Middle Egypt. This gave him a massive workload, and it probably affected his ability to do each job meticulously. That is important to the story. When Lefebvre arrived at Amana, he came to the site of Borchardt's excavation. His job was simple, receive a report from Borchardt about the discoveries made this season. 
Then he could inspect the finds personally to determine which objects were significant and should stay in Egypt. This job played out in two parts. First, Borchardt gave the official a list, noting every significant object they had found. The list was divided in two columns. In one column, a variety of objects were recorded, including a decorated stone stealer. This stone stealer is quite famous because it shows the royal family sitting together under the rays of the Aten. It is a beautiful piece, and you can see why Borchardt put it at the top of the list. The Nefertiti bust, meanwhile, was in the second column. Like the decorated stealer, it appeared near the top of the list, and it should have been relatively prominent. However, this part of the story is extremely murky and contradictory, depending on the source. According to Borchardt's account from the time, the inspector arrived at Amana, received the list, and then did a meticulous inspection of all the objects. According to Borchardt, the inspector saw every object, including Nefertiti, and decided which ones he would keep. According to this version of events, the inspector Lefebvre obviously did not realise the significance of Nefertiti, or he did not care enough, and he simply allowed the Germans to keep her. However, Borchardt's version of events is not necessarily accurate or even honest. In 2009, the German newspaper Der Spiegel, or The Mirror, published information relating to the discovery and acquisition of Nefertiti. Der Spiegel received a document written in 1924 that came from the German Oriental Society, the Deutsches Oriental Gesellschaft. This document recorded the meeting on January 20th, 1913, between Borchardt and Lefebvre. In other words, it bore testimony about the discovery of Nefertiti. The report was written by a member of the German Oriental Society, who had been present at the meeting, and saw what happened. As you can guess, this version of events is quite different. I'm now going to read the Der Spiegel report. Quote, Der Spiegel has seen the contents of a document written in 1924 in which the secretary of the German Oriental Company gave an account of a meeting on January 20th, 1913, between a senior Egyptian official and German archaeologist Ludwig Borchardt, who found the Nefertiti bust during a dig in 1912. The secretary, who wrote the report, had been present at the meeting that was called to divide up the spoils of the dig between Germany and Egypt on a 50-50 basis. Borchardt, the witness noted, quote, wanted to save the bust for us, the Germans. And to that end, he presented a photograph that did not show Nefertiti in her best light. The bust itself lay already wrapped up in a box in a dimly lit room when Egypt's chief antiquities inspector, Gustave Lefebvre, perused the various artefacts. It is unclear whether Lefebvre went to the trouble of lifting the bust out of the box. In order to further mislead the inspector, Borchardt claimed the figure was made of gypsum, when in fact it is made of a limestone core under a layer of stucco. The witness concluded that there had been, quote, cheating, regarding the material the bust was made of. The German Oriental Society confirmed the existence of the document, 
but maintains that the finds of the archaeological dig were divided up fairly. End quote. That may have sounded like a lot, so let's break it down. According to Der Spiegel and the witness statement written in 1924, Borchardt hid the statue of Nefertiti when the antiquities inspector arrived. He wrapped the head up and placed her in a box, along with other objects, and when Lefebvre inquired about it, he simply said the head was made of gypsum, or plaster. This was a fabrication. Obviously, the Nefertiti head is made of limestone, covered with plaster, and paint, so Borchardt underplayed the significance of the item in order to deceive the inspector. Additionally, when it came to showing the object, Borchardt simply gave Lefebvre a photograph, one that did not show Nefertiti in her best light. According to this report, Borchardt cheated the antiquities inspector of the significance of the Nefertiti bust. In other words, he did not report his finds openly, honestly, or transparently. He specifically manipulated events in order to ensure that he could take Nefertiti with him. Assuming Der Spiegel is reporting accurately, I have not seen this document for myself, our understanding of the legal situation changes quite significantly. The new information suggests that while Borchardt did allow an inspection to happen, he specifically organised events so that the Nefertiti bust would go overlooked. This rather changes the perspective of how legal his acquisition was. Obviously, I'm not a lawyer or legal scholar, so I can't comment on the finer details of those agreements, but this does seem like significant information that changes our understanding of the process. As you can imagine, this report prompted an outcry and another request from Egypt to return the bust. Unfortunately, the people who control this matter are having none of it. They continue to insist that Nefertiti was acquired legally, that the inspection was above board, and that the decision cannot be challenged. This is their party line, and they are sticking to it. Your assessment of this situation is going to come down to whether you think Borchardt acted correctly or incorrectly. Theoretically, he followed the letter of the law in allowing an inspection and participating in the division of fines. However, even if it was technically legal, there is an argument that Borchardt's methods were dishonest and even misleading. In that context, we have to question very strongly whether it was right for Borchardt to acquire the Nefertiti head. I can't tell you what to think of this situation, but I will give you my opinion. Although Borchardt may have followed the letter of the law by allowing an inspection and presenting all the fines in a list, I think he acted improperly. Even if he technically followed the letter of the law, his methods do seem to have been dishonest and even deceitful. Although you can say the inspector should have studied every object closely, there is a serious argument that Borchardt went out of his way to obscure the significance of the Nefertiti bust and to encourage the inspector not to look any closer. In that sense, one could argue that Borchardt acted in bad faith 
that the legal agreement that was formed was built on shaky foundations and that his acquisition of Nefertiti was, if not illegal, at the very least immoral. That is my opinion based on the information I have available. I cannot tell you what to think about it, and I do not suggest that I have all of the answers regarding this situation. Unfortunately, Nefertiti continues to reside in Berlin, which has been her home for more than a hundred years, and likely will be for some time to come. I hope she returns to Egypt one day, preferably on a permanent basis. For now, this is what it is. The bust of Nefertiti is a masterpiece of ancient Egyptian art. Its fine carving, expertly applied plaster, and delicate paint job give the statue a sense of life that we rarely see in such ancient images. Whether it depicts the queen accurately as she appeared, or a more flattering idea of her, the sculpture itself is a wonder of the ancient artist's work. Today, Nefertiti's head resides in a museum in Berlin. It seems, based on the information we have, that she arrived in Berlin under circumstances that are questionable at best. And if this is truly accurate, then Borchardt's acquisition of the statue is a dark chapter in the history of Egyptology. Sadly, it is not a unique one. Alongside all the wonderful work done by scholars and researchers who act in good faith, there are plenty of stories just like Nefertiti's, where dishonesty or deceitful tactics result in prized artifacts leaving Egypt for foreign museums. This is a very big part of the Egyptological legacy, one that modern researchers, including myself, must confront and acknowledge more openly if we are going to engage with ancient and modern history honestly. On the next episode of the History of Egypt podcast, we come to the last years of Akhenaten, the end is in sight for the strange pharaoh of Egypt. He and Queen Nefertiti have but a short time left together. And in episode 133, we recount the events of Akhenaten's second to last year, and the bold decisions he made in that time. But first, we have a couple of interviews. To explore the city of Amarna, home of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, we have an interview with Dr. Chris Naunton, independent researcher and former head of the Egypt Exploration Society. Dr. Naunton came on the show for a fascinating discussion about the history of excavation in this city, and some of the people who uncovered the stories of Nefertiti and Akhenaten. Following that, we have an interview with Professor Kara Cooney from the University of California, Los Angeles. Professor Cooney will discuss the power of royal women and the ways that ancient people prepared for their afterlife. All of this and more coming up on the History of Egypt podcast. Oh, and one more thing. Originally, this episode included a section about how the image of Nefertiti has been used in modern art and pop culture. I wanted to dive into the ways the statue has come to symbolize ideas about womanhood, 
personhood, cultural heritage and art in the 20th and 21st centuries. Unfortunately, that extra section was not really working in a narrative sense. I banged away at it, trying to hammer the discussion into shape, but it just didn't work. So, I have shelved that topic for now, but it will appear one day, probably in a YouTube video, when I have the time to make that kind of project happen. Finally, thank you to Linda, Ellen, Terry, Kevin, Neil, and TJ, my priest-level supporters on Patreon. You are too generous folks, and I am in your debt. Thank you kindly for all that you give. That's all from me. I'll see you on the next one. Take care, and may the Arten bless you. Thank you.